All right, we are in Revelation chapter 21. If you would like to open up your Bible to that passage, we've got some kids excited about kids' program. That's awesome. I'm excited too for you. Revelation chapter 21 is where we are today. I want to start, though, with this interchange uh, between two of my favorite fictional characters from Middle Earth. Those who know me know that I'm a nerd, so this won't be surprising. The setting is one of the final battles in J.R.R. Tolkien's classic trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And in this scene, we find Pippin and Gandalf afraid that they will not survive the coming battle. And Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf replies, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. Pippin says, what? Gandalf, see what? Gandalf replies, white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. And Gandalf says, no, no, it isn't. We're in Revelation chapter 21, and I want to start uh, this morning by reading the first eight verses to you. That'll be our main passage today. And John here, the Apostle John, who has been our author throughout this year-long study in the book of Revelation, gives testimony to what is revealed to him. And he writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord to us as church. Can we pray together as we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have to gather. We already thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing for our worship team that's led us before 
your throne. And God, we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to gather in our country, in our state. We have the religious liberty to gather together as a church, Lord. Even as we think about all of the restrictions that have been put on our community because of the COVID virus, Lord, still we have the freedom to gather. We praise you for that, Lord. We praise you that we have this opportunity to worship together. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we study your word. Give us insight, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you're here with us and that you will enlighten this text to our minds and you'll help us to understand it. We pray to this end and we thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us on the cross. In your name we pray, amen. So I want you to remember some of the ground that we covered last Sunday. Creation is groaning because of the fall. This is present. This is now. Creation is groaning because of the fall. The sin of man, both in the original fall in Genesis 3 and our sin since, has impacted the entire cosmos. This isn't my idea. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church when he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Paul here speaking of Adam and the fall into sin. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Church, creation is longing for the day. Creation is longing for the day when it will be made new and it will become what God originally had intended it to be. And may that also be true of us. May it be true of us that we hate the sin that we once loved. This is the very idea of repentance. Metanoia is the Greek word that we translate into the English word repentance. That we change our mind about our sin. And just as creation is waiting, the cosmos is waiting for God to make it anew, may we as individual Christ followers be longing for the day where sin is completely eradicated from our lives. Amen? And may we desire that now. The first verse in Revelation 21, the reason I remind you of what we studied last week, it speaks to this reality. Here John writes, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. As the new covenant brought about by Jesus Christ is superior to the old covenant of the Old Testament, we would also say that the new creation is superior to the current creation that you and I live in. Jesus is going to make all things new, church. And this prophecy, the prophecy of a new heaven and a new earth, has been made throughout the Old Testament. And I'll just show you one passage here in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So several hundred years prior to Jesus' birth, this is being talked about in the Bible. God is promising to do this, to make a new creation. Let me show you just one more verse from the New Testament on this idea. Peter writes and says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Most likely Peter here is referencing the verse we just read back in Isaiah. Peter, knowing his Old Testament, knows that God had made this promise that he will make creation anew. And Peter says, we're waiting for it. We're longing for it. Paul says the same thing in Romans. But look at the end of verse 1. Why is there no longer any sea? Revelation chapter 21, what we're studying today. Verse 1. Then why is there no longer any sea? I mean, for many of us, this could bring some sadness because we love the ocean. We love bodies of water. So why is this even in there? Well, let me say that this, like so much of what we've looked at, in Revelation, and it's okay that we all kind of land in some different spots as we try to understand the book of Revelation. I hope I've said that to you often enough this last year that, hey, if you study this and you come out of this, and if you've been tracking with me, you know what I'm talking about right now. If you come out of this and I'm millennialist, that's okay. Stay at fellowship. We, in our doctrinal statement, we're a premillennial, we have a premillennial view. I personally have a premillennial view. But if you see it a little bit differently, we can agree to disagree on some of these things. And one of the things that we see throughout the book of Revelation is a ton of imagery. And so this is something that I personally look at and I go, I wonder if this isn't meant to convey something to us. I don't know that this isn't symbolic based on what the sea represents elsewhere in Scripture. You see, often in Scripture, throughout the Bible, the sea is representative, it's imagery for sin. Let me just show you a couple uh, ideas here. Isaiah 57, 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and it Its waters toss up mire and dirt. So here we have the sea being used as an image to represent sinful people. And remember, if you will, back in Revelation chapter 13, what does the beast, the Antichrist, arise out of? The sea, right? And so it's very possible that we should understand the absence of the sea in this verse as a complete absence of evil in the new creation. That would make a lot of sense to me. If you see it differently, that's okay. But returning to our passage, in verse 2, we learn that John sees not only a new heaven and a new earth, but John sees a new city. It's not just that God created, recreated the earth and recreated the cosmos, but John sees a new city, a new Jerusalem. Let's look at that together. Revelation Chapter 21 and verse 2, John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. He even defines it for us. He tells us this is the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a new city prepared by God. 
And who is it that inhabits this city, church? Well, the answer was just in the question, the church. Who inhabits the city coming down from heaven? The church does. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Brothers and sisters, can I say to you, this is where we truly belong. In this new city. This is home. What what we're reading about and studying this morning and we'll continue to study about next Sunday morning, this is our real home. This is where our real citizenship is. Again, not my idea. The Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's not a new idea, even with Paul in the New Testament. Let me just walk you through a few things here. I'm not sure I'm in the right passage there. Sorry, it's hard for me to see. Okay. Well, I'll trust that they'll catch up with me if I'm off. But the idea goes back to the beginning of Israel. The author of Hebrews testifies of Abraham in the Old Testament that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So this goes all the way back to Abraham. And later, the author of Hebrews is going to apply this. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, 14, he applies this to all Christ followers when he writes, for here we have no lasting city. What's the author of Hebrews talking about in this verse? For here, here on this planet, in this creation, we have no lasting city, he writes, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, in fairness, I should really tell you that Bible scholars have differing opinions on whether or not this will be an actual city or if the idea of a city here is being used as a symbol for the church. And I I read Bible scholars that argue both ways. And they both have well-thought-out, biblical, well-reasoned arguments. Will this be an actual city that comes down from heaven on a newly created earth? Or is this symbolic for the church itself? I can see the argument. I can see the argument of it being symbolic. I can understand it. Since in the New Testament, the church is often portrayed, for instance, as a temple. We, the church, are portrayed as a house by Paul in his letters, as a building. However, personally, I see no reason to think that this is not an actual city. I personally, as I look at it, see no reason to think that this is not an actual real city that the church will live in. Later in the chapter, John is going to describe it in detail. We're just about there. And I I think it's reasonable to think that we are going to live somewhere. And so why not in this city that's described for us in this chapter? The way I think about it kind of goes like this. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who according to John chapter 1, 
was responsible for the first creation. In other words, our Lord has a lot of experience at making things. Because John says in his gospel that there's nothing in creation that was created that Jesus didn't create. It all came about because of the word. And our Lord Jesus in his incarnation, in his earthly life, spent decades, probably two decades, starting as a young boy up until the time of his public ministry in the construction trade. Jesus loves making things. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and there I, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Bible scholar Grant Osborne talks about this idea. He talks about this new reality, church, that we one day will live in together with Christ. And he says, there will never again be an earth down here and a heaven up there. The heavenly temple has descended in the form of a city and has become the eternal home of the saints. So I choose personally to believe that the city is not symbolic, that there will be an actual city prepared by our Lord that will come down to a recreated earth. What's the best part? What's the best part of our new home? John tells us in the next verse. If you look at verse 3 with me, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, I want all of us to think correctly about this. God is with us right now. Amen, church? He's here. Where two or three are gathered in his name, his presence is there. And he lives, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, the living God lives in you individually, which means when you're at home in your room praying or doing anything for that matter, God lives within you. And he lives within you collectively, as Paul says. Paul makes this clear, 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us individually as Christ followers, and he dwells in us collectively as a church. And there's great beauty to that. So I want to make sure, I want to make sure that we're thinking correctly about this. He's not watching us from a distance. God is not out there somewhere he didn't just create and then kick creation off and let it do its thing. God is intimately and intricately involved in his creation. And if you have a relationship with the living God personally, 
he is intimately and intricately involved in your life. However, at this future point in history, the physical presence, think about this with me, the physical presence of the living triune God will dwell with us. I mean, can you even imagine that? Can you even imagine what that will be like? I know I can't. What will it be like to invite Jesus over for dinner? How many of us would be Martha's and how many of us would be Mary's? If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. You're going to be busily making sure everything is right when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes over for a snack? Or are you just going to not worry about that and sit at his feet? It's beautiful. It's really, to me, probably one of the most beautiful ideas in Scripture because it goes throughout Old and New Testament that the living triune God wants to live with us. He wants to be with us. We can't miss God's heart for our presence in the Bible. It's a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. Let me just show you a few things here. Exodus chapter 29, verse 45. Jehovah says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 through 12 says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. If we go a little bit farther into the prophets, Ezekiel Through Ezekiel, Jehovah writes, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says through Zechariah in chapter 2, verse 11, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, speaking about the very time period that we're studying right now. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And what happens when God lives among his people? Verse 4 tells us the outcome of being the creator's neighbors. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Why is that? Why is it that when God moves into the neighborhood, none of this stuff exists anymore? Have you ever thought about that? God will not be in the presence of sin. God will not allow sin to be in his neighborhood, if I can say it that way. So therefore, sin, depravity, And all of the chaos, all of the corruption, all of the dysfunction, and other consequences that always accompany sin have to be abolished. Death had entered creation as a consequence of sin. And all of humanity has lived in subjection to that death since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. You see, friends, this is all we've ever known. 
We can't even imagine anything else other than that. Sin, depravity, and the chaos and dysfunction that accompanies it. However, at this future point in history, death will pass away. Death will be no more. The Apostle Paul writes about that, and he says to the Corinthians, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, what's he saying? He's speaking very specifically about our bodies and our lives, and and Paul says, when this body's gone, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, that which can't break down, that which can't corrupt, that which dysfunction and chaos cannot enter into. When the mortal, Paul writes, puts on immortality, death is no longer in the picture now. Disease, cancer, all of these things that have made our lives hard, as we've seen those that we love come into their grips, and many pass from them. When all of these things are gone, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. How many of you, church, are looking forward to death being swallowed up in victory? Amen. Mourning, crying, pain, these are all part of our present order. We live with these every day. They will have no home in eternity. They will have no home in the kingdom. Only joy and gladness, wholeness, goodness, peace will be allowed in these city walls. Sounds pretty good. And then we come to verse 5. Revelation 21, verse 5. God speaks. And he says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I want to tell you a mystery here. The future cosmic transformation that we've been talking about this morning, we're going to keep talking about it next week. The idea of a new heaven, a new earth, a new city. This future cosmic transformation is foreshadowed in our lives when we follow Jesus Christ. Think about this with me. When we put off the old self, when we turn from our sin, when we, as John says in 1 John, one of his letters, when we walk in the light, Paul says when you put on compassion, Colossians chapter 3, take off the old, put on The imagery is almost like exchanging your clothes. I want you to take off the things of your sinful nature. Paul writes to the Colossians, I want you to put on compassion. I want you to put on gentleness. I want you to put on humility. I want you to put on love. When that happens, church, when the fruit of the Holy Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, when these things are produced in our lives, when we are transformed into the likeness and the image of Christ, we foreshadow a transformation that will one day happen throughout all creation. The kingdom one day will fully come. That's no one's decision but God's. No one can stop it. 
We don't want to try, do we? The kingdom will come one day in fullness. But the kingdom comes partially in our lives each and every day that we choose to follow after Jesus Christ. Amen? It foreshadows it. We begin to get a glimpse of it. God is already making all things new. He's already making all things new in us right now. And he will one day renew the entire cosmos. The kingdom is coming in our hearts now. One day it will be fully revealed. Let's look at verse 6. God speaks directly to John here in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Living water is another image that we see throughout the Bible. Let me just show you a few passages here. Jeremiah 2.13, God said through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, for my people have committed two evils. What are those two evils? God says they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. What, what is God saying to Israel here through Jeremiah? Look, the two sins that you've committed is you've turned your back on me and you've created these idols that are absolutely worthless. You've gone after absolutely worthless things. You're spending your lives chasing after junk, is what God says through Jeremiah here. King David writes, for with you is the fountain of life, of course, speaking to Jehovah, to God. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, living water, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In church, throughout the Bible, there's this clear invitation for us to drink from this living water. God speaks through Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Revelation 21.6, Jesus offers this living water freely in our passage. And so I guess the question that I've been thinking about this week and I pose to you now is this. Are we thirsty for God? Do we thirst after him? Do we have the same heart for God that's reflected in these psalms? Psalm 42.1 is a dear pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63.1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do these verses describe our passion for God? Can we relate to this? Do we understand this? Do we feel the same way? Do we have the same heart for God that's reflected in these psalms? And then let's just finish with the last two verses in our passage this morning. Here, John contrasts those who conquered with those who have rejected Christ. Revelation 21, verses 7 through 8. John writes, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And God is saying here, 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then notice the contrast to those who have rejected Christ. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, and and the list could go on. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Church, we've seen throughout our study in this book, and I have three messages left for you in Revelation, but we've seen throughout our study that there's a tragic outcome for those who throughout their lives refuse to repent of their sins and remain in their opposition to the living God. However, for all who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, for all who turn from their sin and turn to God and follow after Jesus Christ, they are the recipients of a great and abundant heritage. Let me show you just a couple of passages. In Acts, Paul is with the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says to them, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome that they were heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He wrote to the Galatians, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And he writes to Titus that being justified By his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I want to end with this thought. Do you know what the health and wealth preachers on TV have wrong? The timing. My best life is not right now. To quote my brother Joel Olstein. My best life is not right now, church. What the health and wealth preachers on TV have wrong is that there is absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that if I follow after Jesus Christ with all of my heart and I give generously to their ministries, that God is going to bless me financially and with good health today. There's no guarantee in Scripture. There is no, as a matter of fact, there are actually quite a few passages that say the opposite. When God calls a man, he calls him to come and die, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out. And so, when we follow hard after Christ, we may be looking at persecution. We may be looking at hardship. What the health and wealth preachers have wrong is the timetable. All of that comes next. Our best life, church, is not right now. Our best life is still to come. Amen? Amen. There's glory. There's an abundant heritage waiting for us because we are heirs with Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Would you bow your head, please, and close your eyes. And worship team, come on up. Let's close up together here and... Worship to our great Lord, who has promised us this and so much more. 
And even as I talk about this, and even as we look at these passages that talk about all that is ours in eternity through Jesus Christ, can I say to you that the greatest thing, the greatest thing about heaven will be Jesus himself. You know, I've I've been in the faith now for 40 years. I'm turning 50 this year. Don't really want to admit that, but I am. So I accepted Christ four decades ago when I was 10. And here's what I've noticed about church life and Bible teaching in churches through the last four decades. We used to talk about heaven and eternity a lot more in the church. I've noticed a shift with this. Over the years, we seem to have focused more on the implications of our faith in the here and the now. And and I was all for that. I've got to tell you, I I remember the shift kind of happening and more books being written and more uh, Christian Bible teachers and big name people that we would all recognize saying things like that. You know, we need to focus more on the implications of our faith and our theology on the here and the now in our daily lives. And I noticed that we have kind of stopped talking about heaven and our life to come as much. I, I was all for that at the time. And, and to be honest with you, I'll still say that a lot of that was very needed and very good because reality is, is that when you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, eternal and abundant life starts right then and there. You don't have to wait till you die to start abundant and eternal life. It starts the day that you trust in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing about our faith. But friends, let's never forget. Let's never forget that if we are trusting in Jesus, we have a great inheritance waiting for us. We have a great inheritance waiting for us in a much greater reality to come. On a new earth, in a new city, in which we are citizens. That is our home. Heaven is our home. All of this is just a shadow. And one day this shadow is going to dissipate and we will be in reality with our Savior in heaven in a heavenly city where death cannot invade, where cancer does not have a place, where sickness and turmoil are not welcome. Only Christ, only goodness, only wholeness, only his peace are allowed to be within those city walls. Amen, church? Let's look forward to that together.